ongoing study of Revelation, uh, we find ourselves deep into the final judgment. And one of the challenges as you're studying through these uh, chapters, trying to figure out what you're going to talk about, is uh, what do we say positive <laughs> about the final judgment? It gets more and more challenging as we get into the thick of it. Uh, perhaps, perhaps the thing that we say this morning, uh, the most positive thing is that it's almost done. We're, we're looking beyond this into, there's sort of a light at the end of the Revelation tunnel, and we're looking beyond this judgment, but the judgment stands. It's there. We have to work our way through it. And as we reflect back on the things that have led up to this as we made our journey through Revelation, some of you may be asking, when and, and, and where is the tribulation? Because most of our teaching about Revelation, most of the teaching in the modern church about Revelation always involves some description of the tribulation and, and getting into all of that. And in the three and a half years that we've, we, we have encountered in Revelation, the 42 months and the time times and, and half a time, there's some sense in which the tribulation might be uh, a, a intensified in, a, in the final moments of Earth's history as a unique literal experience. But in the larger sense, the time times and half a time is simply a time that's cut short. And we are all have been living in a time that will be cut short. We count on it. We count on this time being cut short. Certainly, certainly the first Christians, the Christians who read these letters, Christians in Asia Minor, who were already experiencing persecution and who were, were told that that persecution is going to grow greater in the days and weeks to come, understood tribulation to be a present reality. And in this larger sense, the tribulation is the state of things from the time that Jesus ascends into heaven until the time that Jesus returns. That we are essentially in a place of tribulation, even today, though we don't often think about it that way because we happen to be blessed enough to live in a time and a place of relative peace and prosperity. But don't let that fool you. These descriptions of all the things that will be going on in the world while we wait for Christ do not provide, with, provide us with a, a universal picture of what's happening for everybody all around the world at the same time. As a matter of fact, specifically says going to affect a third. The, the, some portion of the world is going to be affected by these tragedies. And as we look at our world today, we look at our history for the past couple thousand years, we see a world that is marked by natural disasters, a world that is marked by geopolitical disasters, a, a world that has experienced famine and, and plagues and slavery and all kinds of human injustice, and it still does. And even if we want to see ourselves as kind of isolated from that, those ideas are distant from us, the reality is that 
the brokenness of this world. The tribulation sometimes reaches into our space and reminds us how broken things really are. And it's at those times we remember that we are awaiting something better. And if we're awaiting something better, then it will require purification. The world in which we live is tainted by sin and death and evil, and it all has to be repaired. It all has to be fixed. It all has to be made new. And if it's going to be purified, then that requires a judgment. And so as dark as some of this imagery is, as frightening as sometimes we might find it, this judgment is a necessary part of the process in order for God to remake the world in accordance with his will. And that's where we open in, in chapter 15 of Revelation. First verse, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with them, God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given to them by God and sang the song of God's servant, Moses and the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Basically, at the opening of chapter 15, John celebrates the finality of these last plagues. God's wrath will be complete. There will be no more tribulation. There will be, after this time, no more judgment. And these plagues, unlike those plagues and, and afflictions that we saw during the descriptions of the tribulation, these plagues are universal. They affect the whole world. The sea, which throughout Revelation has been a symbol of chaos and disorder, has calmed. It's like glass. It has grown still. This churning mass, this source of the beast, is now like a sheet of glass reflecting the light of heaven. And the overcomers, the ones who've, who've been victorious in all of this, the ones who've resisted the empire, resisted the beast, they stand beside this sea and they sing. Something new is happening. See, they're singing a new song. But it's a song of Moses and the Lamb. It, it's, a, it's a new song, but it's a song about something very, very old. Something that has been in the works for a long time. See, Moses is the great deliverer, right? And the Lamb is the one who has delivered us from sin and death. But now... Jesus the King is bringing the final deliverance, the last chapter in this grand story. After this, the righteousness of Christ will reign over the earth. 
So since the world was broken, since it all went wrong, everything that praises God in heaven and on earth and under the earth has been waiting for this eventuality, the return of God's righteousness, the return of God's will, the return of God's kingdom to earth. And so in verse 6 and 7, out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So in the temple of God's presence, the temple is a symbol of God's presence. In the temple of God's presence, a storm is brewing. This storm that shows up periodically here in, in this Revelation vision is always a symbol of God intervening in humanity. And this picture that we get of the smoke filling the temple so densely that nothing can happen in there until the smoke clears. It's the smoke of God's power. Invokes Sinai again. Remember Mount Sinai, the giving of the law is just enveloped in the smoke of the presence and power of God. And the seven angels emerge from this with these bowls, and the bowls are filled with God's wrath, which is really interesting because the last time we saw bowls in this vision, they were filled with the prayers of God's people. And so the implication here is that God is answering the prayers of his people, finally, by pouring out his judgment on the world. The theme of the seven bowl plagues that we're going to read about here is retribution. And that's not maybe a concept we're real comfortable with. It sounds bad. We have been brought up on the notion of turning the other cheek, and of course we should because we are not God. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. But retribution is part of how everything is made right again. It is, in the biblical sense, uh, going back to the Old Testament and the law of Moses, retribution is basically this idea that the punishment should fit the crime, that there should be a balance to it. And so even in this final judgment, we have this sense of this biblical idea that everyone will be judged according to their works. There's almost a restraint to it of, of God saying the, 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 the things that are going to be meted out on the world will be a direct reflection of the brokenness and the sin that the world has engaged. In verse 2 of chapter 16, it says, The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And so the first plague addresses that mark of the beast that we talked about. Those who embrace the empire and choose its mark will themselves be marked. And this this plague is poured out specifically on the land, it says, 
And so what we begin to see is that the judgment is not only on humanity, but it is on the earth itself. And there is a time when the earth will come to its end and so that it can be made new. Verse 3 and 4, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned to blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And then I heard the angel uh, in charge of the waters say, you are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And so the second and third plagues address violence towards the faithful. Let me just point out real quickly here that we've gone from uh, the one who is and was and is to come to simply the one who is and who was because the is to come has arrived in this vision. The people are given blood to drink. The passage, this, the, the passage really sort of explains itself here. You have lusted for blood. And so you will be given blood to drink. It will mean your own death. Moreover, the rivers and the seas themselves, this, these bowls are poured out on the sea and then on the river, the rivers and the seas themselves will die. The earth is beginning to pass away. Verse 8 and 9, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fourth plague is really addressing ingratitude. There's this really powerful idea that, that's woven through the New Testament. You know, Jesus says the, 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 the Lord causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. Everybody in this broken world gets the same treatment from God, essentially. And some people recognize what God does and, and, and some people don't. Paul picks up on this idea in Romans. He says, we have no excuse for not knowing God because he's evident in the creation around us. And yet, and he uses almost this exact same phrasing. He says, in spite of the fact that they know God, they refuse to give him glory. They refuse to acknowledge that he is the one that, that makes the sun rise on all of us. That he is the power and the creator behind everything. And so there's this ingratitude that leads to sin and idolatry. Perhaps what we're seeing is this bowl is poured out on the sun, which is an interesting idea. Perhaps what we're seeing is that the atmosphere itself is beginning to, to pass away. Uh, we're told that our moon, for instance, not having the advantage of an atmosphere, that the, the lunar day is about 250 degrees Fahrenheit. We begin to remove this perfect atmosphere that God has created for the world, and, and the heat of day becomes scorching and painful beyond imagination. Verse 10 and 11, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the 
throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The fifth plague addresses the blasphemous beast. The great deceiver, the antichrist of empire who deals in darkness. That kingdom will be engulfed by that darkness. Now, I want to note here that the, the unrepentant are not experiencing the plagues in the same way that Egypt did. I mean, there's a lot of echoes of Egypt because uh, Egypt experiences these plagues and, and each plague brings them to the breaking point. And then the plague relents and they return back to their hardness of heart. In this scenario, the plagues are cumulative. They don't relent. They just keep coming. And yet we see that same hardness of heart. There is no repentance as these plagues arrive in quick succession. Verse 12, it says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. So the sixth plague addresses rebellion. The imagery here is just weird. And before you ask, yes, that is my professional theological opinion. It's just weird. But understand that in the first century, frogs were seen as uh, very unclean and kind of gross creatures that nobody wanted to, to deal with. Uh, they represent, in this vision, sort of an unholy trinity that goes out to incite violence against God. So try to picture this, if you will, as judgment rains down on the earth, as heaven and earth itself, themselves, are beginning to pass from existence. Everything is falling apart. The unrepentant curse God and the nations are enticed to go to war against God. Probably not their best moment. There are two locales mentioned in this, uh, in this passage. The first is the Euphrates. The Euphrates River dries up. We already talked about the Parthians who were east of the Euphrates. So the symbology for for, for the first readers of this would have been that Parthian kingdom, the threat that that was to the empire, this invading force that was dreaded even by the Romans. And then were, they all gather at, at Armageddon, which is a, 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 a word that we've long associated with Revelation and with the end times. Uh, it, it literally means the Mount of Megiddo. It's, it's an actual place, and it was an important place historically in, um, in, the, in the land of Judea. 
it was a Canaanite stronghold when the people entered the land and continued to be for some time. It was eventually overtaken during the era of the judges and eventually becomes a military stronghold under Solomon. Solomon housed uh, his cavalry there. So you've got war horses and all the implements of war. And so Megiddo has this longtime association, just like the, the Parthians, this longtime association with this sense of a military force that has the power to crush entire nations. And that's, that's what these images invoke here. There's this gathering of forces that has set itself up to try to destroy God himself. And so in verse uh, 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. All those symbols of God's intervention again. Not, no earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts. And the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. So the seventh plague collapses the empires of men. So... Back up for a minute and let's kind of try to understand what's taking place in this vision. Picture this. The kings and the armies of men are gathered in defiance of God at a place called Armageddon. And in their absence, the final bowl is poured out on the air and the earth quakes and hail falls down and destroys all the great cities. And so the empires of the world are facing off with God and they suddenly find they've no empire left to defend. John just leaves it there. Walks away from that storyline. He'll come back to it later. Be very important later on in the vision. But he just leaves it there. What do we have in these chapters? We have a vision of a measured and very specific and truly terrible judgment. Hmm. What do you say about that to be encouraging this morning? Well, the best part of judgment is the non-participation award. When I was in high school, we used to go and do these uh, forensics competitions, speech and drama. I would go do dramatic readings and before judges and be ranked. And remember the first one that we went to? 
I had a judge in one session that really didn't like what I did at all. And that judge in the next session that thought what I did was fantastic. And so I got these two scores back. One of them was like terrible, and the other one was fantastic. And so I didn't win any of the awards that day. But they issued participation awards to us. And I remember, I remember this because I was joking about it. I was joking about uh, having a participation award and how stupid that was. And my teacher got really mad at me. She said, you know, some of the people that came here today, that, that means a lot to them. They got that. And I thought, how can that mean a lot to them? It means nothing. It means that I showed up. It explains a lot, doesn't it, right, about how we've gotten to this point where now we have adults in the country who show up and think they should be awarded. But this is different. The award in the judgment is for non-participation. As a matter of fact, that is the award. Notice that throughout this entire discussion, all the things that are happening are happening to the beast, to the dragon, to the people who have the mark. But the people of God are completely excluded. It's kind of like the plagues on Egypt where, where Israel is, is preserved while the Egyptians suffer. This is different from the tribulation. The tribulation is, is things that, that we may be called upon to suffer through and that we need to suffer through with patient endurance and faith. But in this final judgment, we are excused. We don't participate. We're left out. And we're happy to be so. The message to these seven churches in Revelation is, look, choose the winning team. Even if, in this moment, as you face trial, as you face persecution, it doesn't feel like winning. Understand that the story has already been written, and there is a winning side, and you can choose the winning side now. Christ has already been victorious over sin and death. That is the heart of the gospel message. It is the reason for our great commission. It's, it's why we are reinvesting ourselves in sharing the good news with our community. Because Christ has already won the most important victory. He's overcome sin, which is a problem all of us have. And he's overcome death which is a problem all of us have. And so we make followers, we baptize them, we teach them, because our Lord won. But even as we strive for Christ, even as we seek His kingdom, it is evident from time to time that we still live in a broken world in a broken time, in a time that our faith says will be cut short. It is a time of uncertainty against which we rather futilely try to pretend that we're immune. We try to insulate ourselves. More importantly, it is a time that will end, and it will end suddenly kingdom that we taste 
and glimpse from time to time will become our full reality. Christ's coming kingdom will be not just the end of sin and death, but the end of evil, injustice, and suffering. And that's why John embraces this judgment, not to revel in the, in the pain that the lost will know, but because the long-awaited kingdom, the perfection of God's rule, is just beyond that hilltop, just beyond that horizon. And the tribulation of the church will be rewarded. This tribulation will become God's retribution. Affliction. The affliction that the church has known in this age from time to time will become a matter of payment owed. Those who have created tribulation, those who have rejected God, will find that they owe dearly. But those who have met the tribulation with patient endurance, with faithfulness, will find that their debt has already been paid 